Hi, Zucker Drama listeners. We are back from our late summer, early fall break, and we are very excited to bring you today Dr. Laura Edward Sleeper, who was the founding psychologist in the first youth transgender clinic in the United States, the first one to prescribe puberty blockers to transgender youth. Dr. Edward Sleeper is Professor Emerita at Pacific University and is currently the chair of the Child and Adolescent Committee for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH. She is heavily involved in the revision of the WPATH standards of care and served in the American Psychological Association subcommittee that developed guidelines for work with transgender individuals and on a substance abuse and mental health services administration, SAMHSA, committee that created a consensus statement about the harm in using conversion therapy for LGBT youth. She has a private practice outside of Portland, Oregon, where she works with transgender and gender diverse children, adolescents, and adults for therapy and assessment. She also provides consultation and training to providers and clinics around the country and internationally. She is often a go-to source for media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, the BBC, and most recently, 60 Minutes. And now she'll be here with us in Psychodrama. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Welcome back to Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host, Katie Gordon. And this is your co-host, Leo Boadilla. Still rhymes with Casadilla. It's been a while. It has been a while. How are you, Katie? I'm good. I'm excited to be back to podcasting. I am a little sick, so I'm going to talk less during this episode maybe than usual. I'll chime in here and there, but I want to try to prevent coughing too much into our list. <laughs> and I'll try, then I will try to self-wrangle myself so as to not ramble too much, because today we have an, uh, an amazing guest. I'm very, very excited and happy to to have uh, Dr. Laura Edward Sleeper, who uh, happens to be my uh, colleague, at, well, former colleague at Pacific. She's now an emerita professor. And we will be talking about transgender youth, actually, and uh, gender nonconformity and some very interesting hot topics. So can't wait to get into it. So with that, welcome. And hi, Laura. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being with us. This has this been, we've been really looking uh, for a long time to, trying to have you. So very excited about this. So with that, uh, I just kind of thought it would be easy we can start by maybe telling us a little bit about um, your trajectory. How did you get interested in this area, uh, what your training was, and uh, you know what, what, what has led you in this, this pathway? Well, I have always been very interested in issues related to gender and gender identity development and those sorts of things. And so through my undergrad, actually, and graduate training, I did a minor in gender studies and a graduate certificate in women's studies. And then it actually was during my first job at Boston mm-hmm. Children's Hospital when I was there working in primary care. So actually not really doing anything specific to gender. Mm-hmm. The first pediatric hospital-based program for trans youth was created. Mm-hmm. And this was in 2007. And they needed a psychologist to yeah. be a part of the interdisciplinary team. And so I jumped on the opportunity to do that. And and so became a part of the the very small team initially. It was just an endocrinologist and a urologist and myself. But they sent me to the Netherlands to train with 
the Dutch, who had been already working with transgender youth for a number of years and tracking progress and treatments and all of that sort of thing. So I went there to learn about their protocol and then brought it back to the United States and created an assessment process that could be used here in the U.S. Um, so you kind of adapted the, the Dutch model a little exactly. bit to, to the U.S. And so 2007, that is really not very long ago that this area specialization started. And so maybe give a little bit of a brief idea of what the Dutch model was like and the adaptation to the American model was like or is like. Yeah, well, that's actually a pretty big question <laughs> or a lot that could be a long answer because <laughs> um, the the way that people have approached the model has really changed drastically in that very mm. short period of time. Like you mm. said, it has not been that long, but yet people have really started to approach the care very differently. Um, so just in a nutshell, the Dutch model in terms of you know assessment for gender diverse youth um, really involves very heavy mental health involvement. So very comprehensive, in-depth therapy for, you know, like usually like at least a year with mental health provider who's working with the kid, often with the parents, and kind of through that time also informally assessing sort of where the kid's at with their gender and what they're wanting. And then in addition to that therapy process, they also require an assessment, like a more formal assessment. Um, and so the clinic there consists of, I think, 20 some mental health providers with like one endocrinologist. So it's very much led by the mental health team, which is one of the main differences between that program and pretty much all of the ones in the United States, maybe except for a couple. Mm. Um, so I brought that back to the brought the, tried to bring this like model back to the United States, which states, which was really difficult for a number of reasons. For one, um, as I said, that clinic was the only clinic, the clinic in Boston was the only clinic for uh, several years that served youth. And so people who needed the care were coming from all over the United States to Boston. And so, and, and I was only one mental health person and had, I think initially like mm -hmm. four hours a week of time devoted to this. And so uh -huh. there was no way that I was going to be the person to do like the ongoing therapy, you know, that they, that the Dutch did. Um, so instead I decided to set the model up in the U S where mental health providers in the community would be like in the, in the patient's community would be responsible for providing that ongoing kind of initial work and care. And then they would come to Boston for a more formal assessment um, with me. And at the time in 2007, that was actually very challenging because there were basically no mental health providers who had knew anything about working with trans youth. <laughs> there were no, right. there were hardly any, you know, papers or, you know, articles or books or anything on this topic. And so when we eventually hired a social worker in that clinic, a, a good chunk of her time was actually consulting with um, mental health people. And, and I did that as well, just kind of around the country to try to help them feel confident in their ability to, you know, do some of the work initially before the family would come to Boston. Okay. So that's, so I created this, this way of sort of approaching the assessment involving cl clinical interview with the kid and with the parents, as well as a battery of gender and psychological measures. You know, I created that in a very traditional kind of psychology way, you know, where we, you know, would have an, mm -hmm. you know, the long assessment and then you know, several hours with the with the family and then would do a feedback session, write a report, you know, including all of the data and the conclusions, recommendations. And that is the way I have continued to do it, like up until this point. And families really like that. You know, mm -hmm. they really like 
having a more formal process that, you know, has a product at the end that they can take with them and they can give to the medical team or, you know, there's therapists that the kid may be working with elsewhere um, because it's so comprehensive and, you know, really includes all of the information. But that is not what is happening in most Mm. places, actually, Mm -hmm. in the U.S. That's not the approach that, you know, many people are taking these days. And there's a number of reasons for that, which I can get mm. into. But yeah, so maybe I'll yeah. stop there. because No, I that's good. Yeah. For a while about <laughs> <laughs> so basically, there's yeah, so this adaptation of a very psychosocial model adapted from the Dutch model, but, and perhaps it's speaking to kind of the American culture, what you're alluding to is that there is, it's, a, it's been moved more towards a medicalization model. And maybe that's actually a pretty good way to kind of tie into uh, one of the difficulties of this area, right, is that we're we're dealing with people who have gender nonconforming behaviors, and we're talking about variants of sexuality or gender or gender manifestation. But at the same time, uh, in a way, it has been medicalized and it's been part of the DSM. So, can you maybe talk a little bit about the differences, similarities between gender nonconformity, gender dysphoria, and maybe that'll give us a nice way to kind of channel mm. to the tension between the medical model, psychosocial model, and what are the approaches that are being used with youth? Right. Sure. So, you know, that it is it does get very complicated because certainly individuals who do experience gender dysphoria, meaning, you know, typically what we mean by that is like, you know, distressed caused by a mismatch between the person's kind of felt gender identity and their assigned gender identity and or the body that they have. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the dysphoria is that distress that people experience. Typically, somebody who experiences dysphoria is also what we would consider gender nonconforming or gender diverse in some way, preferring the clothing of a different gender or hairstyle of a different gender, name, pronouns, all that kind of thing. But there it is important. It is really important to note that there are certainly people who are, you know, quote unquote, gender diverse or nonconforming who aren't transgender and and may not experience gender dysphoria. And I think, ironically, one of the unfortunate outcomes, I guess, of where we are right now in the field and just not even just in the field of transgender healthcare, but just in terms of societal understanding of trans issues is that even though we're we're talking so much about gender being on a continuum, in many respects, we're kind of forcing people into more of a binary, <laughs> which is ironic that that's what's happening. But, you know, so and I guess what I mean by that is, you know, with the younger kids, so, you know, prepubescent children, sometimes, you know, they I think these days they are sort of not I don't know if pressure is too strong of a word, but kind of encouraged to take one gender or the other. And they're they're being taught sometimes that, you know, sometimes people people are born in the wrong body and and that's okay, which is all you know, positive information for them to hear. But I think that sometimes the younger kids can get a little bit confused by that. And they, you know, Mm. they're very concrete in their thinking. And so you could have a gender nonconforming or gender diverse child who really has no gender dysphoria. And these days, sometimes parents will jump to the conclusion, oh, my kid must be trans. And maybe we need to like socially transition the child, meaning, you know, change their name and pronouns when that may not at all be what is in the kid's best interest. Um, Mm -hmm. So so what's happening, you know, a lot of times we use the term gender nonconforming with younger kids because it's it's very common for little kids to be nonconforming in their gender, you know, especially if they're raised with parents who are open to non-traditional ways of, you know, raising boys and girls. But it's also relevant with adolescents, you know, who, you know, just don't fit the typical 
you know, roles and expectations for boys and girls. And so, but, but I do see these days, sometimes even with teenagers, where it seems like there's less freedom to be gender nonconforming, you know, let's say as a girl, Mm. when there's so much talk of, you know, people transitioning and being transgender or being gender or being non-binary, you know, like, and there's so many other terms that people are using. So it does get a little bit confusing, but typically, you know, we think of the dysphoria part being those who experience the distress and then possibly, you know, may benefit from medical intervention, but not always. That's a whole nother topic that we can get into if you want. I think what you're, so what you're alluding to is important, which is there's this developmental aspect and you, you're a child psychologist by training. You are alluding to the importance of keeping in mind that gender nonconforming behavior, you know, is present in early childhood and be a part just a, a normal feature of identity development, just normal development. And that maybe you feel, yeah, maybe there is this movement right now in which there's a jump to kind of like push them in, a, in, in one category when it could be just normal developmental exploration. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And it's also important to note that there is research that shows a correlation between early childhood gender nonconforming behaviors and later sexual orientation being not um, mm-hmm. straight, you know, and and that kind of has gotten lost in a lot of the conversations these days. And so that's one of the other things that I try to talk with parents of younger kids about um, to make sure they're aware that, you know, that your child's non- gender nonconforming behavior may not be related to their gender identity, actually, in the end, it may be more related to their sexual orientation. And so we really need to keep the door open to whatever way mm-hmm. this is going to go for the kids and not lead them to believe that they, you know, need to make a transition with their gender if that's not actually likely in their best interest. Okay. Katie, looks like you want to say something. Oh, yes, I was just going to ask, when you're doing an assessment, I guess, what are the ways that you look to examine whether this might be gender dysphoria versus some of the other possible pathways that you mentioned and that you've observed? So I'll speak to the adolescents. Um, um, because it really, the approach is different, you know, with younger kids versus the, with teenagers, in part because with teenagers, we're often talking about possible medical interventions, and we're never talking about that with younger mm. kids. It's more mm. about, mm. does it make sense for the kid to socially transition or, you know, what, you know, what's going to be most helpful to the kid and the parents? But with the teenagers, you know, what I was referring to before was that what we're finding is that people sometimes experience gender dysphoria for reasons other than being transgender, which is really not fully accepted, actually, by the um, trans health care community of providers, um, which is interesting. But I think from like those of us who are in the work from doing mental health service, providing mental health services, we see this, we see this play out. Um, and so part of what we're trying to do in both assessment and in therapy is to tease apart, you know, what is really causing this dysphoria? Because there is no blood test or brain scan or, you know, something like that, that we can easily say, okay, this person, you know, is quote unquote, really trans or something that or will really benefit right. from medical right. intervention. So some of the things that that I, we're kind of looking for that could be like flags to suggest maybe we need to slow down a little bit or take a deeper look at this would be things like um, a history of trauma, um, mm-hmm. particularly if the, the person hadn't 
gotten help for that, you know, treatment for it. Other factors would be, you know, complicated mental health issues that, again, aren't haven't been treated and are still causing a lot of distress. Um, it, one, one very common um, thing we see is kids with autism spectrum disorders or characteristics of autism. They may not have diagnosable disorder, but that can complicate things for a number of reasons that needs to be sort of looked at a little more closely. Also, more and more, we're rec- recognizing that for some youth, um, and I can say this, by the way, because my teenage patients tell me this is happening. So it's not just me making this up, (laughs) but that for some youth, there are peer influences, you know, Mm -hmm. both in person, you know, like their friends at school um, or online, you know, social media and that sort of thing. And so we have to like really be, be paying close attention to, you know, where, like, when did this all come about for the kid? How did they come to realize that they were identifying as trans? And, you know, what does exactly, what exactly does the dysphoria look like? Um, Typically, people who are trained, like identify as trans do have some degree of body dysphoria. So it's a little bit unusual, or it's, it's quite unusual if the young person says they don't really have body dysphoria, but yet they want to transition medically. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. You know, so yeah. we have to kind of understand, well, is that really going to be in your best interest if you're not that unhappy with your body as it is? So there are a lot of different factors that come into play. Probably the most common are the mental health issues. So a lot of these teenagers, particularly the ones who did not have childhood dysphoria, so it's something that came about more recently, often have a lot of mental health problems that often aren't really being addressed. That's helpful. And so if I could just make a quick summary, it sounds like um, so there's there's been this interesting pendulum swing. So in a very short period of time, from 2007, that there was very little knowledge regarding what do we do with gender trans, gender nonconformity, especially in adolescence, as there are decisions to be made regarding whether we want to help affirm, you know, their their gender identity, uh, and taking pretty drastic in some cases uh, medical measures towards it to and not having a lot of resources to it to now the pendulum has swung in a way that everybody's very affirming and they perhaps with good intent the way they're thinking is the best way to do it is to very quickly jump on those interventions shortly after the the, the adolescent or the child may be manifesting nonconformity without really doing uh, a thorough exploration of other possibilities that may be explaining the behavior that we're seeing. Yep. That kind of captures it. Yeah. That captures it. And it's a a fairly, it's a pretty currently, I mean, that this, we've seen this in in the media and in many many other ways, this this is playing out. And I should say, uh, Dr. Edward Slipper has been, very gracious in upgrading from 60 Minutes. She was featured in 60 Minutes very recently in the Atlantic, and now she has taken the extra bump to Psychodrama Podcast (laughs) 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 take her to the next level. Um, But And we'll be linking to those interviews. Um, But in in those interviews, she talks more and more in depth about, we're not going to go too deeply into that, but there's some serious controversy in our society as to what is the best approach to help these gender nonconforming youth. And I think that to me, as an observer, it seems that there's a lot of good intention behind the arguments, but because of that, um, there's a lot of strong beliefs regarding what should be done, and then that is causing a lot of clash in the field, if that kind of summarizes it. Yes, that's that's exactly what's happening. And I completely agree with you, Leo. I think that I really do believe that every person, every provider, medical and mental health provider who is doing this work 
has their heart in the right place. You know, I, I really do believe that everyone wants the best for these kids and is just going about it in the way that they feel makes the most sense, um, given the circumstances right, that exist. Right. And some of the circumstances are we have an exponential rise in the number of young people who are coming to clinics and f- seeking providers to help with this transition process. And we do not have enough trained, particularly mental health people, like well-trained, you know, especially to do the assessments, but even really to do the kind of deeper gender exploring kind of work. So that's part of the problem is just that we don't have the supply of providers. But then the other piece is that there are these kind of different philosophical approaches or ways of understanding all of it, such that some providers, like I said earlier, really see being dysphoric with your gender as pretty much always meaning that you're transgender and therefore the best treatment in many of their minds is medical. Mm-hmm. And right. so it's just a very, so that I think in their mind, it's often, there's this question of why would we slow things down if that's going to be the best treatment for the person? And they're not always seeing how it can go a lot of different ways. It, you know, it's, or it can be caused by other things. It may not always be in the person's best interest to go so quickly. And that quicker approach is really the approach that's used with transgender adults, which is called the informed consent model, which from my perspective is very appropriate for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that, you know, I think the 18 to 25 year old, like, older mm-hmm. adolescent, young adult, like emerging adult group, emerging adulthood, yeah. probably, you know, from my perspective, from what I've seen working with a lot of patients is that they would probably benefit from their own kind of specific approach. It's a little mm-hmm. different from the ad- younger adolescent, different from the adult approach. But either way, I mean, what's happening is that there are pediatric providers who who believe and therefore are applying the adult informed consent model to youth meaning they don't see the need for assessment. They don't see the need for mental health involvement. It's, you know, and they're not rec- really recognizing yeah. the complexity of adolescent development and yes. how that may be playing a role as well. Yeah, that's such a tough, I see this a little bit in, you know, adolescent and juvenile justice systems that what do we do in this period of time in which we know there's, you know, there in many aspects, there's social, psychosocial development is very mature and adult-like, but in many other ways, it isn't. And then depending on what issue you're pushing, you're like, well, you should treat them like adults or no, we just still need to protect them like the children that they are. Right. And that tension is very difficult. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about the difficulties? Uh, so you, you alluded a little bit to the lack of trained clinicians, in particular mental health clinicians that are able to that will do this work. What other difficulties do you see in the field regarding the, the, the what you would consider the proper assessment of gender nonconforming youth uh, or trans trans youth? Well, one of the other problems is that because of these differing opinions about how to best approach the work or, you know, it kind of also boils down to some providers that take the more adult model, having this idea or the belief that if a teenager says that they're trans, then they must be They're, you know, that they're the only ones who knows their identity. And if they say they're trans and they say they need hormones or top surgery or whatever it is, <laughs> that we need to believe them and help <laughs> them get that. And so that's so that's kind of what is now, you know, when we talk about like affirmative care or the, um, <laughs> you know, that that model wasn't really ever intended to suggest like fast tracking people. (laughs) But that is kind of what people are using it to mean more and more these days is just affirm the the young person's identity, help them get what they're saying that they need. 
And so because there's such a divide about, you know, whether that's the appropriate approach versus going more slowly and cautiously, which is sometimes seen as, well, it's seen as being unnecessary, you know, at best, but even sometimes people jump to saying that that's like conversion therapy by which, you know, Uh trying to get the kid to go back to their assigned gender, which is not at all what is meant by that. But some people jump to that. And so there are a lot of providers who are afraid to do the more gender exploring kind of work because of how their colleagues may view them, of how the the parents and the, the kid, depending on what perspective they have on all of it, you know, how they may take it. Um, and so it can be very difficult for providers, even if they feel like that maybe is the best thing to do, they may feel pressure to m- move more quickly. I'm curious, Laura, if you might explain what the consequences could be for moving too quickly to, um, it seems like, in terms of transitioning without that proper assessment and what the consequences could be with the opposite, which is taking things mm-hmm. too slow. Right. That's an excellent question. And I like that you added the last part, because I do think it's really important to recognize that by not doing anything medically, you know, um, that is a decision and that can't have consequences, you know, and so we cannot, we can't dismiss that. So I guess though, to start the main concern with moving too quickly, especially in these cases that have these like flags or more complicated Mm -hmm. is a fear of the young person later regretting their decision. And Mm -hmm. then what we call detransitioning, um, you know, right. and and I would say that, you know, detransitioning in and of itself is not a bad thing. I've, I've talked to people and I've read stories of people who have detransitioned, but they were OK with it, you know, or they maybe mm-hmm. they de- they went from, you know, their assigned gender to a different gender. And then they ended up kind of in the middle as like non-binary or something, but they were comfortable with the medical changes that they had undergone. And so mm-hmm. it was all OK. You know, so those cases definitely exist. And there are also absolutely cases of people who transition and then for like reasons like pressure from society or their family or their church or their job or whatever um, decide that they can't handle it. It's too difficult. And so even though they really are trans at heart, they decide that it's just too difficult to live in society that way. But those are not the ones that I'm worried about <laughs> as much. I mean, I, I, you know, it's mm. more the young people and there are more and more of these coming out. There was actually just an article published like a week ago from um, Lisa Lippman. The Lippman studies that we reference in this part of the conversation are two studies by Dr. Lisa Lippman at Brown University. The first of the papers published in 2018 in PLOS1 is a survey of parents of adolescents and young adults who are, quote, perceived to show signs of rapid onset of gender dysphoria. This study received significant attention, support, and critiques because it coined the term rapid onset gender dysphoria, which, although not a recognized diagnosis, supported the experience of some parents who reported observing sudden gender dysphoria, mostly among adolescent girls, after interacting with groups of peers who were trans themselves or with various internet sources discussing gender dysphoria and transitioning. One of the main criticisms of this study has been the possibility that the parents may have been biased or even transphobic in their responses. Following the controversy, the study received a formal review by PLOS, and after some revisions in terminology in response to the criticisms, 
it remains available, and Dr. Lehman has stated that its main conclusions stand. The second study was published in 2021 in Archives of Sexual Behavior, and it followed, quote, 100 individuals treated for gender dysphoria with medical and or surgical transition who subsequently transitioned, close quote, meaning that they detransitioned. Now, this recent study has not been as controversial, but the topic of detransitioners itself is controversial, and indeed was the topic of an Atlantic article in which Laura was featured. While these studies are not the focus of our episode, we touch on them and their findings as a cornerstone of the current societal and clinical controversies and issues in the assessment of gender diverse and trans youth. We will be linking these studies and some of the critiques on the show notes. Now, back to Laura. Um, Lisa Lippman, looking at detransitioners, and it does seem like there is a, gro- there are, is a growing number of them and a, and a substantial number who do really regret the decision and are really having mental health issues as a result of that. And, and the other interesting thing she found in her study was that, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was a, a, si- a very sizable percent of individuals who felt that they had not undergone a proper assessment. Um, so it, finally, we have some actual data to show, you know, at least with a subset of like 100 people, you know, that um, there are some concerns with the way the mm-hmm. field has been approaching it, um, at least for some people. Um, But then going to your other point, I mean, absolutely, the reality is that it for young people who really, you know, who've persisted with their identity for like some time and have been so clear about it and have gone through proper assessment and have gotten mental health support and, you know, all of the pieces are in place they benefit so much from the transition. And so to withhold that unnecessarily for them, is, it can really be damaging to them psychologically. And, um, and that's why, you know, some of the legislation in some states that's trying to ban care for trans youth is so concerning because right. it really, I think, will have a hugely negative effect on, you know, the kids who really would benefit from that. It seems like there's this tension between a, a lot of areas, but one of them is, you know, people's what they perceive people should be like. So you should be more towards the original, you know, the more traditional binary. So then they're going to create like those laws that are repressive against treatment. And then there's other people who really like, you know, we've had all this period, you know, this history of having repression of expressions outside of the binary. Now it's a time to really push forward for, for people who are seeking for that care. And then those extreme, those extremes are maybe perhaps uh, hurting. Sounds like a, a lot of people in the middle kind of get caught yeah. into what would be the best approach, which yes. would be. And I, I, that, that was kind of the, the thing I was going to ask is, it you uh, you mentioned affirming uh, affirming care, but it sounds like the the the, the term has now been. I wouldn't say what well, would be like the, the, the term is misunderstood or maybe has been taken away from its original intent mm-hmm. to now something else that just means whatever the adolescent says is, that's what we should be doing. Right. So maybe talk a little bit about what, what, how, how did it start? What was there? Again, we will post an article that actually that you, that you and some of your colleagues wrote precisely about uh, affirming care for youth and mm-hmm. what it would be like, but maybe talk a little bit about what it, what, what your idea or what the, that article's point is and what the intent of affirming care was. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, I think initially most people agreed that what we were really trying to do was help the adolescent 
figure out the best path for themselves, whatever that was. So with no preconceived mm-hmm. ideas about transition is not, you know, is going to be in your best interest, you know, just because you're feeling this way now, it may or may not be. But our, our goal is to affirm whatever your ultimate identity is going to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so and to, you know, kind of be a partner with them and with their parents in the process of exploring that and understanding it and following the standards of care, you know, that say mental health people should be involved and there should be an assessment and, you know, we need to be very thoughtful about this. Um, and so that is it, it versus um, doing like conversion therapy. That was kind of what it was, you know, kind of uh, we're, we're going counter to the idea of trying to just help the kid be happy in the body that they were born with and, you know, be okay with the gender that they were assigned, but to just kind of leave it more open and to be support them in transitioning if that ultimately was in their best interest, basically. Um, and so now it's, it's more and more come to be understood as um, just, as I said, you know, just, you know, kind of a, supporting the child or the adolescent with whatever their gender is in the moment. But beyond that, helping them with the transition, even if it's irreversible medical intervention, and even if there are these complicating factors. Um, and so, you know, just taking a... A, a kind of more, I guess, more like adolescent patient-centered approach, but in a way that kind of disregards the complexities, you know, and right. the, the kinds of things that we as mental health providers might be able to shed light on, yeah. you know, to help guide the treatment. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in your practice and what are some of the things that you, from that developmental perspective and perhaps the social pressure, other factors why gender mm-hmm. nonconformity may be appearing in adolescents that mm-hmm. may not be necessarily be uh, that the person is in fact trans? Well, it kind of um, it's goes back to what I was saying before about the dysphoria. So the other reasons the person may have the dysphoria, mm-hmm. whether, you know, it's trauma or mental health issues, trying to fit in with a with a peer group. If the young person has always struggled to fit in with their peers and then they learn about trans identities and they start to wonder, oh, maybe that explains why I've always felt different. It also, you know, and it also certainly could be um, confusion around sexual orientations. Um, sometimes pe- Young people have internalized homophobia that they're not even really aware of. And so um, they get confused and start to think that it's more a gender identity issue. So and 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 depending on, you know, the, the teenager, you know, if they do fall on the autism spectrum or even if they don't, but they're very kind of rigid in their thinking, they may have very black and white ideas about what's appropriate for boys and for girls. And mm. You know, if kind of like with the younger kids, if if they feel like they're not fitting neatly into the box mm-hmm. of whatever their assigned gender is, they might think that that means that they're trans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I th- those are, I think, you know, a lot of what she found in that study with the parents is very much in line with what I and other clinicians doing this work are seeing. Um, there was a lot of pushback about that study for all kinds of reasons, but um you know, and I don't necessarily agree with using the term rapid onset gender dysphoria. I think that there's mm-hmm. some problems with, you know, with that. But but I think the phenomena of that is happening. Like there are some some right. subset of the young people that are that are coming forward do fit in that category. And it's it's not to say that 
none of them are truly trans or would benefit from transitioning. But I would say that those kids do need to have a more thoughtful and um, kind of cautious approach and not be rushed forward as quickly because it's well, for one, we have no research on that group. We have in terms of longitudinal research, there's zero research mm-hmm. on how those young people do in the long term if they do medically transition. And so we really, you know, we have to be I, I think have to be more cautious if there's no research to guide us. Do you mind sharing? You said there, there are some problems both that people had with the with the study, but also the term itself. What what kind of issues do you see in, in that term? Well, I I think, you know, a lot of my colleagues and I agree with them on this don't like that this term was coined that it has it was not based on any sort of like thorough, you know, it's not like a clinical term in the DSM, you know, so but yet people are kind of using it that way. And so I will get parents who will call me and say, I've got an ROGD kid, like, can you help me, you know, and, and they're automatically sort of jumping to this conclusion. And it's, you know, so I think it's useful in that it does give a term for something that we're, you know, seeing happening. And so it's a way to communicate about it. But I I have seen it used so loosely, and just as a way to dismiss any teenager who comes out as trans, when there are quite, you know, there are a lot of teenagers who either did experience just dysphoria when they were younger, but weren't comfortable coming out. And so those would not be these ROGD kids. Like, you know, those kids actually had dysphoria for a long time, but um, they, it just wasn't until they got a little older that they were comfortable. And then there's also a subset I see who, you know, maybe were a little more gender nonconforming as kids, but they weren't the ones saying that they were born in the wrong body. They, you know, they didn't socially transition as a little kid. Um, but, you know, it's not until they get into puberty that they, and cognitively kind of get to a point where they realize, okay, this is not the right gender for me. And again, I would not classify those kids as ROGD kids. That's really a different group. And so really the ones that um, that I am referring to when I say, you know, need, need to be more cautious are the ones who truly, you, they and their parents will report, this came about very suddenly. Like this came about after I was on YouTube mm-hmm. watching a bunch mm-hmm. of videos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And th- that's where I think, you know, we do need to look more closely. Thank you for clarifying that and the, the role of the parents, which I think is just from my understanding very important with working with children and adolescents and mental health, um, just in general. From my understanding, that's been one of the concerns people have with that study, that it's looking at parents' perceptions. And so I'm wondering how you how it influences your assessment and treatment process. Yeah, great question. Do you have parents that seem unsupportive or who are um, kind of from the outset not open to exploring their, you know, having their child explore their gender with an open mind? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about that because I forgot to mention um, going back for a minute uh, when we were talking about like the different philosophical approaches and the adult informed consent model not involving mental health, you know, people and all of that. The other big difference between the adult informed consent model and what's recommended in the standards of care for adolescents is to have parents involved in the process. Mm -hmm. And so what is also happening sometimes in the field is parents are not being involved in the process. And let me tell you, 
they are getting angry. <laughs> and most yeah. of the ones that I consult with are not the the ones you just described, like the con- like more maybe conservative or, you know, maybe have religious views that make this really difficult. Um, the ones who contact me are extremely liberal, progressive. They'll, they all basically say the same thing, that they will mm-hmm. support their kid if this is really what's um, happening, like if their child really mm-hmm. is trans. But they just they feel like they've been left out of the process because the the places that they're going to get help are not including them mm-hmm. and don't want to hear their side of the story. So I mm-hmm. I see that more these days than the parents who are just completely against this. Now, obviously, those parents exist. Um, mm-hmm. I actually really like working with those parents <laughs> because I think there there's a lot we can I can do or we can do to try to help you know really unpack their own gender biases and like their own upbringing bringing related mm-hmm. to gender and try to figure out like, where is this coming from that you're, you know, reacting so strongly against your child being trans. Um, and those parents also respond so well to having an assessment done because they mm-hmm. like data <laughs> and they, they like feeling like this kid, this is a, an actual process. And if through this comprehensive process, you tell me that, you know, there really aren't any flags and, you know, everything sort of lines up then we will feel much better about moving forward. You know, that goes for both, like all the different parents. But um, so, so yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely work to be done with the, with the parents who are just, you know, against it for all kinds of reasons. Um, But the other piece is just for whatever reason, you know, we've, where we've gotten in this, in the field, which is so strange because it, like you said, it's, it's not this way with any other work that you do with youth. You always involve parents in some capacity, unless it's going to harm the child to do so. But, you know, you wouldn't like do some other major medical procedure with an, a minor without involving right. the parents. And so it's very strange that that's considered okay by so many in this field right, right now. Absolutely. So you really try to work with those parents who would be opposed to transitioning, even when it's indicated that it would likely improve the child's mental health and have found, it sounds like, that some have been receptive and maybe there is space there along with the assessment to kind of work within the family to help the youth and and also the parents be involved in an affirming process, ultimately, wherever they land. Yes, exactly. And I will say that that is one thing that the medical providers who I've worked with who don't fully agree with me on the need for this comprehensive assessment, Mm -hmm. many of them will say that they have seen how it can really turn those parents around. Like they've Mm -hmm. been pretty shocked by how, you know, these parents who come in so opposed, (laughs) you know, if they go through a process, you know, and, and, you know, obviously, you know, you have to have good rapport with the parents. You can't be approaching them like they have no idea what they're talking about and dismiss their whole, you know, their concerns, their fears right. for their child. You have to be a good clinician. But I think if you can accomplish that, then it can be hugely successful and really and then ultimately be the best thing for the child, you know, the, the, to be supported by their parents. And that's the other thing. I I guess it's so frustrating when I hear about parents not being included is that there have been stories and, and even patients I've worked with where by a provider, you know, dividing the family like that and only working with the adolescent, it causes so much more conflict. Mm-hmm. And and that just results in, you know, very poor outcomes for everyone. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an, a very, you know, critical part. Yeah. So and just kind of go back to a little bit. One of the things that stood out to me about the Lidman study 
was the um, the mentioning of comorbidities, and there seems to be this. Uh, and I wanted to also kind of I don't know if Katie picked that because Katie's a a suicide researcher and eating disorders researcher. And there was this analogy that I think a lot of people picked up on, and they were concerned about that they were making this analogy between gender nonconformity and perhaps contagion effects with suicidality and or eating disorders or uh, you know kind of this. Um, like pro-anorexia groups, et cetera, on, online that tend to be um, encouraging of dysfunctional or, or maladaptive eating behaviors. And the, the concern of some of the, um, the critics of the Levin study is that, look, uh, you're equating it to these things and that's not necessarily what it is. Well, perhaps the Levin study is saying, well, there is maybe there is something to this idea that there's all of us are in a cluster mm-hmm. of teenage girls. And that, that was a point that was made at the sample of the of, of parents talked a lot about those gender effects. A lot of girls were having and the, those ratios have switched rather dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, maybe what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Well, I'm going out <laughs> on thin ice here with this. But <laughs> oh, OK. All right. But it's OK. It's OK. I mean, I do think that there is an element of that with some of these kids. Again, it's so important to recognize, like to emphasize that this is not the case for all like any of the things I'm saying. You know, there's which goes back to why an individualized approach with comprehensive assessment is so important, you know, because other how else can we try to tease apart like all these different pieces? But but I do hear about this from parents and the youth and youth. And, you know, and I, I, you know, I've read about it. Certainly there's been more and more articles about it, but I, I do think it's concerning the way, you know, um, social media has, you know, kind of played a role in some of this for vulnerable young people who are dealing with a lot of mental health issues and trying to figure themselves out. And I will say that it can be difficult sometimes to know when you're doing the assessment or in therapy with the young person, if what they're saying is actually their story, or if it's almost scripted, it almost sounds like they're like regurgitating stuff they read online or telling somebody else's story. (laughs) And so that can be really hard too to tease apart, you know, is this your story or uh, something you people have coached you online to say when you have an, a gender assessment, you know, so that can that can be tricky. But I, I think that it is something we need to really be aware of and and honestly learn from, you know, what's happened in the past with other like with eating disorders and suicide and, um, you know, with youth and how that can be influential for some. It, it seems like the the part that is really hard to balance is desire that which I think is a good one to not dismiss people who are presenting with real concerns. And I it seems like that's where that's why I, I like the individualized comprehensive assessment approach. It makes so much sense to me. It seems like it's hard to walk that balance to acknowledge that yes, this may exist, but also that's not, I don't know, ninety-nine percent of the people coming in or something like that, right? Do you think that people, depending on their particular views, will grab on to one area or another and kind of use that to argue one way or the next? I do. I do. And I, I've thought a lot about this. You know, I think as a psychologist, we all like analyze things to death. Um, and I've thought about like how I've gotten to the point I have, because 
I, I do really feel like my approach and understanding of this has evolved significantly from the time that I started. And mm-hmm. so I think part of it was just being like, you know, being naive when you're new to doing the work. And so sometimes I will hear, you know, clinicians who are new to the field say things and I'll think to myself, okay, I would have said that back in 2007 or 2008. Mm-hmm. Like that is the way I was thinking about this back then. And so part of it, I think, is just having worked with hundreds and hundreds of families and, you know, seen so many of these kids and different ways that these things present and go. And um, that obviously has impacted my like way of thinking about it. And I think the, but then the other piece is that I, I think because I'm trained to work with youth and I'm also have a background in, you know, like before I got into this, I was really into feminist psychology right. and eating disorders and body image and like the impact of societal pressure on adolescent girls and all of that. So I have all of that in my brain, too. And so I'm just very aware of these influences and like all the different factors that can go into play. And so I think that that influences my conceptualization of these cases in a way that probably people who don't have that background aren't thinking about, you know, and mm-hmm. and then particularly, I think adult providers who are comfortable working with teenagers, you know, because they're not in some ways, they're not that different than working with adults right. in some, when it comes to like maybe depression or anxiety, they don't have the background in adolescent development to really put that piece into the equation. And so I think that there's a lot of you know, a lot of reasons. And then and the other part that I, I have to say, even though it's I mean, I just think it's it's a reality for some people. It feels really good to give people what they want. You know, it right. fe- it's it's it feels really good. I mean, it's very reinforcing to, you know, to just support the person mm-hmm. on their journey and just, you know, not ask any difficult questions, not risk them getting angry with you. Right. You know, and as mental health providers, we're more used to that. Like we're trained like that's part of what we do. Um, medical providers are not, I don't think, really trained to do that. And so I think that's very hard for them to sometimes put up roadblocks because, you know, that's, you know, they're, they're there to kind of provide the medical service that's going to make the person feel better. And so mm-hmm. they don't want to get in the way of that, I think, sometimes. But um, but I do think some some providers kind of fall into just feeling kind of like a hero, you know, that you're doing this great work and you're getting positively reinforced for it. And so that's so much easier than risking getting fired by the client or their parents getting mad at you because you're not being affirming enough or something, which Mm -hmm. occasionally will happen to me. Like if I, if I push too hard or, you know, it doesn't go quite right, um, then, you know, that it's unfortunate, but that that's a risk. seems like there's these interesting parallels between the, the, I guess I would say the um, reinforcers that adolescents who may be questioning or feel some kind of gender dysphoria, they get reinforcement for, questioning their identity and that was one of uh, aspects of the Litman papers that they're asking that you know there was this uh positive peer pressure to like non-conform and you know it's not outside and that's certainly something that is a part a feature of normal adolescent behavior right you mm-hmm. you try to carve an, uh, an an identity for yourself and at the same time there's also this pressure among the adults in, in the helping professions that are supposed to be serving as a balance uh or, or as an assessment force to kind of continue, you know, to further continue in that process rather than being like a like a stopgap, if you will, and with valid concerns because there are consequences that can be negative to individuals who are in fact trans and could be accessing that that care. So it's 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 an interesting kind of there's a lot of parallels between all of that and it's a, it's a it's a tough spot. Yep. 
And just probably from the region of the country, I mean, I'm in North Dakota, I think that it it seems like the peer influence is like you were kind of talking about pressure and affirming and all right. that stuff. It's just very, it seems like, I imagine that's what you see, Laura, too, that it just varies so much depending where you're at, where I do think, at least in my work, it seems very hard to be gender nonconforming in a lot of ways, whether the person's transgender or not, in a lot of areas in the part of the country that I'm in. I appreciate you bringing up the geographic differences, because I do think that is huge. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I talk to families, I always, you know, obviously, I want to know, like, where when I talk to parents, like, where are you calling from? (laughs) Because it really does shed some light on what likely is kind of the kind of the experience of the child. And, um, and that can be really helpful to just sort of understand that. And typically, like you said, you know, in more conservative or rural places, it's pretty rare for the for an for a young person who I'm assessing to report, you know, that there are like half their class is trans right. or gender diverse versus <laughs> in many places on the West Coast, for example, <laughs> you know, where truly, I mean, you know, I I have I have patients who are at school in schools where they tell me like more than half the school is gender diverse in some way, you know, and it's mm-hmm. maybe they're not all identifying as trans and wanting medical interventions, but a lot of them are, you know, a lot of them are, are doing that. So it's very interesting, you know, and to look at that more closely, I think would be extremely valuable. Yeah. I mean, to me, it just reminds me like if if we could do the the experiment, you know, the mental experiment of thinking, okay, what if you, what if you didn't have political affiliations or cultural prescriptions against gender, what would be close to reality? What would be closest to, to what the human experience would be like, right? And it's hard to say, I mean, maybe that's what it would be like, right? Like if, if you remove all of them, maybe that's what the, mm-hmm. the full spectrum of human sexuality might right. be like. It would be just to have somewhere that are in between some people who are very much yep. one way or another. Yeah, I I agree with that. And, you know, one thing that I will often talk to, talk to parents about is, you know, well, they'll ask me questions about like, should we allow our child to, you know, our teenager or younger kid um to use a different name and pronouns or like get their hair cut shorter or different, let grow it out or wear different mm-hmm. clothes, you know? And my feeling about that is, yes. I mean, that's the, most of that usually is totally fine, especially mm-hmm. if the kid's like really pushing for it. I mean, it gets a little bit, I guess a little bit into the gray area with the name and pronoun stuff for reasons that I could talk about. But, um, but, you know, I think young people are really pushing us to rethink gender and and to see it as like more of a continuum and to be mm-hmm. able to identify in different ways. And and I think that's all very positive. Um, like I said at the beginning, it is a little ironic how when I talk with some of these kids, you know, they right. they really don't like it. What seems to be off the table is identifying as like a masculine girl, you know, or mm-hmm. a feminine boy. You know, instead they have other terms for it which often do involve some sort of medical intervention. And that's where I feel like the line has to be drawn in terms of, you know, what we're just allowing to happen, you know, because we think it's part of diversity (laughs) and where we we have to be a little more cautious, at least until we have more research to sort of guide us, you know, around some of that. Um, That's actually kind of surprising to me. Could you say a little bit more about the, you know, that that it's off the table to be a masculine boy or a feminine girl, that that's kind of like now falling off? Yeah. Yeah, Can you explore that a little bit more for me? It's really interesting. And this is the thing that a lot of the parents I talk to 
will be scratching their heads about because they will say, you know, like a mom, for example, will say, you know, I was like a tomboy when I was younger yeah. and I, I've never really worn dresses. And, you know, I just I'm kind of more masculine in a lot of ways. And I don't understand why my child can't just be happy being like that. But then mm. when you talk to the the young people, it's like it's they they a lot of them, even though, you know, the ones. So these aren't the ones who are saying necessarily I'm you know, I'm. I identify strongly as a boy and mm. I, you know, um, because a lot of them don't like they will say things like I am sort of non-binary. I'm sort of more masculine um, because I really don't like, you know, the kind of I don't like it when people call me a girl. It just doesn't yeah. feel right. And I do want a masculine body like I, mm-hmm. I do want testosterone. Mm-hmm. I want to have facial hair. I want to have a deeper voice. Um but when I talk with them about the possibility and do they know people who are women or girls who are just more masculine, mm-hmm. a lot of them don't, you know, they, you know, maybe they'll t- talk about their parents, but um, it's just, it's just been very interesting. I found. And of course I'm only seeing the ones coming in sure. who are having these, you know, issues or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, it's not like I'm seeing the whole gamut of teenagers at high schools to see right. like there are actually more that are, that are like that, but it just seems like there has been sort of a shift but it's 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 still an interesting data point, right? Because it shows that for for whatever reason, for these uh, children, adolescents that are coming in to, to see you, there's this constriction of roles that maybe it would be better perhaps if they kind of were able to like, you know, pump the brakes. You don't necessarily have to uh, start having surgery, right? But maybe you can explore other options that are available to you if you really are in this non-binary Mm-hmm. non-binary spectrum. Well, and that actually, now that you're saying that reminds me, I mean, that is one of the things that we are learning from the people who have detransitioned. A lot of that the stories exactly where do, you would say you would go, yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, a lot of the stories are that they can't, as they, as a person got older, they realized that, oh, I can be a woman and be the way I am, you know, and, and I can be comfortable with that and I can be comfortable with my body. And I just didn't realize that when I was younger and felt like I needed to transition for whatever reason, you know? Um, so it, it, I do think that for some people, you know, that's happening. And I don't know if that's because of misogyny for, you know, for girls and women, or I, I do think toxic masculinity plays a role for some of the boys. Like they just, mm-hmm. you know, they, if they're not like a typical, like stereotypical, um, super masculine, mm-hmm. Um, boy and they're kind of rejected by their male peers or like really sensitive or that sort of thing. I have worked with some of those kids who, you know, then get confused and think, well, maybe this means I'm a girl. Mm. And I've, I've had some who, you know, through therapy have realized, no, actually I'm not, you know, it's, you know, I need to kind of understand myself as different than these other boys who I've been right. around through my childhood or whatever. One of the things that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to just follow up on is you mentioned that sometimes autism is present and I'm wondering how how, what does that bring to the picture? That yeah, yeah. So this is an interesting part or an interesting piece that, you know, that is recommended and in the assessments that always be screened for because we do see a very high correlation between gender dysphoria and autism spectrum mm-hmm. characteristics. Like I said before, some diagnosable, some not. Like people are diagnosed and some aren't. But um, and it's complicated because while it's really important to figure that piece out. It doesn't really tell you what direction to go then (laughs) Mm -hmm. because on one hand, because it's so highly correlated, you know, it could sort of just be more evidence for, okay, this person probably really is trans and they really would benefit from medical intervention because we see it so often co-occur. 
Um, but the on the other hand, what sometimes happens is a couple different things. Either if the, if part of the autism includes like, you know, the really rigid thinking about things that can complicate a young person's understanding of gender. And so it, they may be more likely to really feel like if they don't fit neatly in the box, then they must be the other gender. And so that does happen sometimes where you, you know, you kind of have to work with them to see, okay, there's a lot of different ways to be a boy, you know, and there's a lot of different ways to be a girl and it doesn't mean you need to change your body, you know? And so, so that's, that's one part that can come up. The other thing that I see happening, um, and again, it's tricky because it, it, you know, even if this does seem to be part of the story, it doesn't really tell you what way to go with everything. But if the young person has struggled to fit in throughout their life um, because of the because of autism, and that by the way, these are all almost always kids who are very high functioning. So that's mm-hmm. why a lot of them sure. aren't diagnosed when they're younger. You know, it's like not until they come to me for a gender assessment. I do a screeners, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, we well, need to send you to somebody to, to more look more deeply at that. Um, but it, you know, once they get to be an adolescent, they it starts to hit them on a on a different level that I don't fit in. Like I've and I've never really fit in. And they think about it with their same gender assigned gender at birth people. So I've never really fit in with the girls. You know, now I'm an adolescent. You know, my body's changing. I still don't feel like I'm fitting in with the girls. So maybe I'm a boy. You know, and so it can because of the not fitting in. Mm. like through their life can make them question if it's about their gender. Mm. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's very complicated and it, and it comes up a lot actually. Yeah. And that has been reflected in the data, right? So there's, it's not just kind of this clinical observation, but there's actually some data that suggests that there seems to be this link, maybe yeah. not a cause or anything. It's just that it's, it's a thing, right? So there's, there's a thing for some, there's, yeah. for some reason, adolescents who have autism spectrum traits or uh, symptoms, they may be more likely to kind of feel that non-fitting. And then one explanation and say, well, if I'm not this category or this category, then I must be this other category right. that seems to be created. And what I also find, and I'm not an autism expert, right. but I feel like I've had to sort of become like extremely well-versed in that because I see it so often. Mm-hmm. But um, as you probably know, I mean, we know so much less about autism in assigned females at birth. And right. and I mean, the screeners even that exist are not really yeah, like they don't work that great for that population. And so I, I suspect that the percentage is even higher than what some of the research shows in terms of the, you know, the, the, the correlation, uh, because I don't think we're all there. The research has always captured all of the particularly the assigned females who probably are on the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Thanks for explaining all of, you know, we could probably have a a very long conversation and not get to all these important points, which is why we'll definitely link to a lot of things in the show notes. But one thing that I, I'd like to talk about a little bit is to understand medical transitioning, understandable, understandably, it sounds like there are a lot, there's more controversy around that because of the things that you said that some people really benefit from it and some people regret it. Some people are kind of in a middle space. From your observation, when you've done a thorough assessment and it supports that medical transitioning is part of the treatment process. What benefits do you see to trans people who go through that process? Mm-hmm. The benefits are significant for people. I mean, um, it absolutely improves quality of life, um, mental health. Um, and that's not to say, you know, if there are underlying mental health issues that are kind of separate from the gender dysphoria, 
it's not going to fix those. And that's one of the important parts of therapy and assessment is helping people have realistic expectations. Mm-hmm. And really, mm-hmm. through the assessment, you know, as psychologists, we're, we're pretty good, you know, di- <laughs> diagnosing and, and understanding like what's causing what usually. And so I find that to be one of the most beneficial things of assessment is being able to say to the kid and the parents, based on all the data I've gathered, based on the family history, based on when the you know mental health symptoms all started and all of it, I suspect that either these mental health issues are pretty much related, entirely related to the dysphoria. And by, you know, going through forward medical interventions, my guess is that they will improve significantly or based on all the data. It appears that this mental health stuff is significant with or without the gender dysphoria, and we need to make sure you're getting treatment for that. Um, And we need to also make sure that none of you are expecting that by starting testosterone, your mental health issues are going to go away. So it's really important that they go into it with with accurate and the parents, too. I have had parents say we've tried everything else. Like, let's just let's try this now to see Mm -hmm. if this works, because nothing is is alleviating the mental health issues. Um, But. Going back to your question, without a doubt, so many youth that I've worked with have gone on to lead happier, healthier lives, more confident. You know, they develop more friendships. They, um, you know, get into relationships. You know, it's and and granted, you know, I'm not following all of my patients. I'm not doing a research study, you know, which I probably should. I try to follow them, but um, but I so I don't know for sure, you know, how many have continued to be happy. But from the, you know, during the time that I'm working with them mm. and when they come back for me, because a lot of or come back to me, a lot of them will come to see me for an initial like comprehensive assessment for blockers or hormones. And then we'll come back later when they're ready for a surgery or so I do see a lot of them like over time. And so many continue to you know do so much better, like as I mm-hmm. as I see them. So um so it's it's absolutely um, beneficial. And it, it, it also, you know, when it's the right thing, it improves this relationship with the parents and the family, you know, because the kid is, you know, no longer depressed and sure. sort of not comfortable with who they are. And so parents yeah. will see it, too. And that often is the thing that really helps parents over kind of get through their grief and loss is when they see their kid just blossoming and doing so much better. And pretty much every parent will say, you know, I just want my kid to be happy. And so if that is ultimately what makes their child like truly happy, then it's a good outcome. That that alludes a little bit to the kind of final point that I would want to wrap back to was we don't have good longitudinal data, right? So when you were talking about the clinicians who want to help and they really, it feels good to help and to give people what they want and, if you're being a hero, like, yeah, you're removing obstacles, is that oftentimes that individual will leave their office and then they won't come back. And then one of the issues, you know, or, you know, they'll be, and then you, you don't have that, that circular, you know, the outcome data that you should be using in order to inform your practice is to see, okay, how, how, how well did my intervention actually work? Uh, and so that's one of the issues that when I read the article in the, the transitioners that you were featuring the Atlantic, that was one of the issues that were raised. Essentially, the longitudinal data, there's a lot of these people who are like, look, I thought that was going to be the solution to my problems. And I guess what? Now I had other ones and now I have these other problems because I have medical complications and things because the medical intervention does have, you know, they do have positive outcomes, but there is also a medical intervention. So they're also going to have effects in the body that are going to be oftentimes long lasting and for some of the, the transitioners, not desirable. So that that's an interesting, that's kind of the point to, to kind of highlight. Yeah, well, and I'm glad you brought that up too, because sadly, 
one of the things that a lot of detransitioners have talked about, you know, sort of like online and, you know, YouTube videos that people post and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but then was confirmed in Littman's recent study on detransitioners is that the the majority do not return to their providers to tell right. them. Right. And there, what I've gathered is that there is, there's a lot of shame and there's, I mean, and also with, when it's a medical clinic, they may not feel the need to, to, I mean, if they've just decided I'm going to stop hormones, like they may not, they may just stop hormones and, or, you know, if they've already had surgery, I mean, if they're mm-hmm. not going to reverse it at that point. So I think part of what what's really unfortunate is that because people who do detransition very often are not going back and informing the people who helped them transition, (laughs) the -hmm. people who the providers are kind of in denial that this is actually happening. Um, And so one of the things I have tried to openly encourage detransitioners to do is to please go back and tell your providers that worked with you to begin with so that they're aware of it. And also one of the things that I have started doing more and more is this whole detransition phenomena has become more apparent is to make sure that the young people who I'm working with in therapy and assessment hear me say several times that if they ever feel like their path is going in a different direction and then, Mm -hmm. you know, they want to detransition or they're just not sure they're trying to figure it out. They can always come back to me and I will support them through that process and Mm -hmm. there will be no judgment, you know, and all, all of that because they, they do experience that they're afraid to go back and get help. Yeah, that was also some of the comments in, in the Lehman study that uh, so the parents were saying that the daughters in the two cases they were featuring in the qualitative data was that they were worried about going back to school because like I'm going to let people down because, mm-hmm. you know, after all of that and went through pronoun changes and things. And now I'm like and ask, can, can we move basically? Like, and I just I never want to go back to school because I don't want to let other people down, which is pretty poignant. They're so mm-hmm. sensitive about other people's feelings and how they perceive them. Well, they're, and they're sensitive to the trans community and they're they're aware right. that, you know, that's the big de- issue right now. And why right. there is so little research, honestly, on detransitioning is because people are afraid to publish yeah. that research because of out of fear that that will negatively impact sure. trans people, you know, because mm-hmm. then it will just could potentially add fuel to the conservative fire or whatever, you know, to, um, you know, to not su- support ever helping people transition if we're going to have all these people changing their mind. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's, but I think that's very misguided. I think we have to be talking about this, both for the sake of the detransitioners who feel like they have no place to go, you know, they're kind of left to figure that they kind of deal with this on their own often. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it just, you know, we have to know what's, what we're doing well and what we're needing to change and how can we figure that out if we don't talk to people who have had a bad right. experience with it? Yeah. Yeah. That's important. That's unfortunate, I guess, is that uh, ultimately we're suppressing science one, you know, one in both ways uh, because we're concerned that it's going to be weaponized by mm-hmm. political factions or something to make their points in that rather than we want to collect data and put it out there in order to improve outcomes for individuals. Thank you so much, Laura. I wanted to ask one last question for psychologists or other mental health providers who are listening. What can we do to become more competent, informed, and affirming in the area of working with gender diverse clients? Well, I think that the best thing you can do (laughs) is stay on top of the literature and the controversies um, Mm -hmm. and 
use your critical thinking skills, which fortunately we were all hopefully trained to use all the time (laughs) um, to really think deeply about what's happening in the field and how it's influencing care. Um, the other, another thing that I, I really encourage people to do is recognize that you can be affirming and supportive of, of people going through this and also still use your clinical skills to diagnose mental health issues, mm-hmm. <laughs> still use your therapy skills to treat the mental health issues that are going on and to not fall into this, you know, error in thinking that, you know, everything is related to the gender dysphoria. And so right. that's all that you need to focus on. And that does happen a lot. Um, mm-hmm. um, so I think that those are some really important things, you know, trying to get any additional training. Um, and WPATH is, a, I think, a great organization um, to join. And, you know, generally is, you know, at the conferences and different trainings that they offer, there's, there's well, there's actually a whole, it's called the Global Education Initiative, which is like a series of, trainings that you can attend to just get Mm. more up to speed on these things. Um, And so I think that's, you know, those sorts of things I think can really be helpful and to also pay attention to the detransitioners. And, and, you know, I actually have started recently thinking that anybody, any mental health provider doing this work really should have at least one or two detransition clients on their caseload because the, the one I've only had one who actually was someone who came back to me, um, after I had helped them transition, but I have mm-hmm. learned so much from that person and mm-hmm. I'm wanting to see more detransitioners because I really feel like it will help me just be a better clinician for those who are transitioning. So yeah, I think those are some suggestions I would have. Great. Thank you. That's great. Anything else that you think we may have forgotten to say? Not to make it sound like a therapy session. Is there anything I forgot to ask you? <laughs> Uh, well, so where can people follow you and find you if uh, either for research or collaborations or, you know, for referrals? Um, well, I have a, web, a website and I have an email. Email is a, is a good way to communicate with me. Um, I actually I should mention that I, I may be offering a two day um, training on the assessment process sometime. Oh, awesome next year. I've done a lot of those, but I haven't ever done one that was virtual. Um, so I'm playing around with the idea of maybe doing that at some time, sometime in 2022. Um, but, uh, you know, you can find me at my my email or website. Your website? We'll link you that. That's Dr. Edward Sleepers. No, Ed, is it? What is what is your website? Give your... Oh, your, your Leo, your I don't know. What my <laughs> <website>. <laughs> I mean, it's just my name, but I can't remember how many dots there are in it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, don't worry, dear listener. We we shall post it. <laughs> so you don't have. been a while so let me <laughs> I'll, I'll <say. clears throat> bumblebee bumblebee bumblebee